So as you've um, heard uh, Matt say earlier on, we're starting a series on the book of Ruth. And today I'm going to read the first chapter in Ruth. It's a great story if you haven't read it before. I love it. Um, and you can find that on page 263 of your Pew Bibles. Page 263. Okay. So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they'd lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilian also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. When her two daughters-in-law, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Then they, when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be a Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied 
by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. How are you going? Good. My name's Matt. If I haven't met you yet, uh, I'd love to meet you. I'll be at the door on the way out. Um, it's great to have you here. Let me just add my welcome to Matthew. I noticed yours says Matthew and mine says Matt. So I'm a little less informal than that. So no. um, It's great to have you here. We're opening a gem of a story. If you haven't read the book of Ruth before, it'll take about 20 minutes. Um, you might need to find a bus to get on or something to find 20 minutes in your life. But I encourage you, read it to the end. It doesn't matter if you read the whole thing before, um, before we finish because I find as I revisit these earlier chapters, even if I know the end, it's just as rich. In fact, it gets more rich as uh, the more you dig into it. I think it's the best. A story doesn't get better than this. And storytelling hardly gets better. Um, this story has everything. It has tragedy and loss. It has grief. It has despair. It also has hope. Um, it has romance and friendship. It has love in it. Um, the detail that comes through in the text is so vivid that it just makes the images explode in your mind. It's beautiful. Um, and so I really encourage you just to enjoy it. This is a superb story. And more than all of that, it has meaning for us today, which is why we're looking at it in church, which is why it's in the Bible, because it, it speaks to our moment. It speaks to our stories today. It's an ancient story, thousands of years old, and yet it means something for you today. Um, so we're going to work through it chapter by chapter over the next four weeks, as Matthew said. Um, and I'm excited. So why don't I pray for us as we embark on this journey with Ruth? Let me pray. Gracious God, you're so kind to give us such a beautiful, real, rich narrative in the book of Ruth. To give us a lens through which to see you more clearly, to understand you more deeply, to understand also our world and ourselves better than we, than we do. And so we ask today that you would speak to your people, speak to us. And may we return to you, even today, knowing your steadfast, your faithful love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, there's a piece of African litany, things that Africans do when they get together in church that goes like this. The minister stands up in front of the people and he says, God is good. And the people respond by saying, all the time, all the time. And then the people say, all the time. And the minister responds by saying, God is good. I love that it's a, a thing that they do together because it kind of reminds the minister after he says, God is good. They, they correct him and they say, actually, God is good all the time. And then they say all the time, and the minister says, God is good. That's the lesson we're going to learn today. Uh, it's a lesson we need to be reminded of because I think that's a lesson that's easy to know and to remember when life is good. But what about when life is bad? Do we still believe that? 
easy when life is good to say God is good all the time. But what about life is bad? Is God still good when life is bad? Maybe you found it easy to say God is good when life is good. But what, what about when you're going through illness? Or suffering from a disease? Or maybe a, a close one is going through sickness? What about when you experience death? The death of a friend or a family member? Is God good? What about when relationships are breaking down, not working? Relationships in church? Is God good then? What about when your financial situation isn't getting any better? Maybe it's been bad for years. Maybe an investment's gone terribly wrong. Is God good then? Can you stand up? God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. What about when somebody personally attacks you? What about when you make a mistake, a serious, regrettable mistake, and the situation's unraveling? Is God good then? Is God good all the time? Is all the time God good? In the opening few verses of this chapter, we hear Naomi's story and her family's life. We hear of it disintegrating. It's falling apart. And Naomi, we see even at the end of this chapter, Naomi is struggling to believe that God is good because of her life's circumstances. How can God be good when my life is like this? Look at the end of the chapter, chapter 1, verse 20. It's on the the second page there. Chapter 1, verse 20. She says to her friends as she returns, Don't call me Naomi, which, by the way, means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. She told them, call me Mara, which by the way means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. God is not good all the time. All the time God is not good, is what she says. Uh, What I want to do this morning with you is I want to look at the circumstances in Naomi's life that make her say this. Because we might see some of our own circumstances in her life. Then I want to have a look at the responses to God, the responses that people have in times of tragedy. We see three in this passage. And then I want us to think finally about what God might have for us in our own suffering, in our own pain, in our own hardships. So firstly, the circumstances. What I want us to do is I just... It happens... The Verses 1 to 5 are so quick and so terse and so just dot point. But I want us to just absorb Naomi's hardship. I want us to feel her emptiness and her affliction. And so this is going to be a little bit slow, but just because I want us to really feel what she's going through. There are six, at least six problems that I can see in these first five verses. So go back over Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 to 5. It says, in the days when the judges ruled or in the days when the judges judged. Now, this is a timepiece and I'll tell you about that in a moment, but it's also a piece of satire. 
Because as you're about to find out, there was no such thing as judgment in the days that the judges judged. In the days that the judges judged, it's a time before Israel had a king. And a generation of people who'd grown up, a generation of people who had grown up who didn't know God, and they forsook God, they lived their life their own way, not his way. And as a result, they were overcome by their enemies. And so what God would do is instead of raising up a king, he'd raise up a leader, a judge, uh, who would set the people on the straight and narrow, and he'd deliver them from their enemies for a time. But as soon as that leader died, guess what? The people went back to their old ways. The people would even go about their lives in a more corrupt way. And this pattern goes on for some 300 years. God raises up judge after judge after judge, and the people get no better. They actually get worse. Have a look at the end of the book of Judges, which is actually right next to the book of Ruth, because Ruth is in the middle of the book of Judges. So you don't have to turn a page, but it's on the opposite page there. Verse 25, the last line in the book of Judges, sums up Ruth's cultural context. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone, everyone did as they saw fit. Well, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What's it like at home when the family does, each person in the family does what's right in their own eyes? You know what it's like at home when everybody just does as they see fit. It can be chaos. Imagine a whole nation like that. A friend of mine says, Judges is a time of religious and social insanity. A commentator I was reading says, it's surprising at the end of Judges that Israel exists at all. Because in the days the judges judged, there's no judgment. There's no real judgment. There's no justice anywhere. That's Naomi and her family's first problem. Her nation is in spiritual decay. It's in social chaos. It's in political unrest. That's not an easy context to be in. When the social fabric is inconsistent, when politics and leaders are corrupt, uh, when the religious foundation is crumbling, perhaps that feels like your context today. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. That's Naomi's context. That's her first problem. It's a political problem, a social problem, a cultural problem. The second problem is even more basic. In verse 1 it continues, there was a famine in the land. Famine is rock bottom. Humans need a few things to live. Shelter, clothing, food and water. And I know, like, maybe like me, I live most of my life full. I, and if I'm hungry, that's cured in a moment. I have a fridge let me just remind you, nearly one-tenth of the world's population currently experiences famine. That means they're hungry right now with no immediate provision. Famine is as rock-bottom as life gets. It's hard to deal with anything in life when you're hungry. Also, in this part of the Bible, in the Old Testament, famine can be a sign of something else. And that is... It's God's way of reminding his people that they're being spiritually unfaithful. 
And it's a reminder that they need to return to him. So there's a sense that even in this rock-bottom hunger in Naomi's stomach, there's a sense actually that maybe there's a divine judgment on her nation at the time. Problem number three. We're still in verse one, by the way. How terrible is this? What a life. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah together with his wife and two sons went to live for a while in the country of Moab. If you know your Old Testament, Moab doesn't have a great reputation in the Old Testament. Do you know Sodom and Gomorrah? That's downtown Moab. More than that, Israelites were forbidden to mix or befriend Moabites precisely because in ages past when Israel had gone to Moab in a famine for help with food, Moab had said no. The idea of going to Moab for refuge and for provision is ludicrous. And Naomi's family might be experiencing all this hardship on the outside, political, social, cultural unrest, a famine, but then this man and this woman decide to go to Moab. They're making bad decisions, it seems, on the inside. Decisions they'll likely regret. Elimelech's name, that's Naomi's husband, Elimelech, his name means, my God is king. And yet he is taking his family to a country known for its idolatry. This family has a few problems. Problem number four Verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Naomi's experiencing civil unrest, famine. She's moved away from her hometown, her friends, everything she knows. She's made this decision with her family, and she's made it for her husband and with her husband, and now he is gone. And in a patriarchal society, Naomi has just lost her provider and her security. And verse, five, we're to, uh, verse 4, we're told, her boys marry Moabite women. Like I've mentioned, this is almost everything but illegal. It's not good. In the Old Testament before this, when Israelite men had been seduced by Moabite women, 24,000 men had died as a direct result of that. This is not looking good. Problem number 6 Verse 5, both Malon and Kilion also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. If Naomi could have been provided by her sons, now she can't be provided by them because they're dead. Naomi's story this far is tragic. It's gone from bad to really bad to really bad to really bad to really bad to worse. Don't miss the desperation of these circumstances. Naomi lives in social and political anarchy Religiously, she potentially lives under a sense of judgment. Physically, she can't find her daily needs. Personally, she's experiencing loss and grief. And now her future is compromised as well. To make things even more bitter for her, the author begins by calling her wife Naomi. By the end of verse 5, it's not in our translation, um, but in the original language, it just ends up calling her the woman a mother now without her children, a wife without her husband. She doesn't even have a name anymore. She's stripped of her identity. It's little wonder that Naomi 
returning to the promised land after 10 years is feeling bitter. I know we've taken 10 minutes to explore that, but I think it's worth it. She left Israel with an empty stomach, but now she returns to Israel with an empty heart. I'm not sure what your last 10 years have been like. Maybe they're easy. Maybe life is good. Maybe your life has seemed fuller in the past. Maybe in the past it seemed more on track, more altogether. Maybe right now in your life there's some real emptiness, some real affliction, some real misfortune. Maybe something that makes you even feel that God has a vendetta out on you, that God is against you. Are there things in your life that are making you question God's goodness and love? Like Naomi. I'm pretty sure Naomi would be able to sympathize with you. This is often not a a philosophical problem for us. This is often a personal, deep, real, and recent problem. And I don't know about you, but I often look out on this lovely family and I think, surely these people have been through so many different things that they're unshakable. You know, they're happy all the time. But I wonder if, like Naomi, you've been a great Christian maybe your whole life. You've lived amongst God's people. But maybe life, like the story of Naomi, reminds us life hasn't gotten better. Life's actually gotten worse. And I wonder if even today you're questioning, is God good all the time? Let's have a look at the responses that we see in this passage. There's three, three responses. The first is Naomi's response. Then there's Orpah's response. And then there's Ruth's response. Uh, Naomi's response. Naomi's response is to be bitter. And, and I think that's understandable. She's hopeless and bitter. Have a look. If you need to turn back to uh, verse 20 and 21. Um, have that open in front of you. She says to her friends, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi's bitter. And there's a moment here, I think, as she responds to God. You'll notice she uses two different words for God. She uses the word Almighty and she uses the word Lord. And there's something significant about those two terms. But what I would just want to notice here for a moment is that Naomi's comments here just open a door into a whole realm of questions about God's sovereignty in our suffering. There's a whole world of questions that I'm sure you have and that you've lived through and that you experience. Uh, But I just want to focus on Naomi's response this morning because I think there's some really helpful things in there. And there's also some things that we're a little uncomfortable with, and I actually think there's some things that are unhelpful about Naomi's response. Let's firstly just think about the helpful things. The first thing is Naomi calls God Shaddai. That's the first way she describes God, or Almighty, the Almighty. And that's a word that describes God's omnipotence. What's that big word? I've just given you like three words that mean nothing. It's God's control over every detail of our life. She ascribes God full control over every detail in her life. She says that God governs everything. 
And I think that's true. That's very true. That aligns with what the Bible says about God. He's involved in even the smallest details of our life. You're going to see that time and time again as we work through the book of Ruth. God involved in the detail. And this aligns, of course, with what Jesus says. Jesus in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 10, 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, you know, a sparrow is valuable, but they're not as valuable as you. And yet, he says, not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. In other words, God's involved in the detail. He's even involved when life gets hard. He's even involved in suffering. That's true to say as well. It's clear that God's hand is not just involved in the good in our lives, but God's hand is somehow involved, somehow over the bad. We see that from the beginning to the end of the Bible. And the ultimate example of that is Christ, Jesus, on the cross. In that moment, we look at his suffering and the Bible can say, on the one hand, the Jews murdered Jesus. It's a tragedy. And on the other hand, Jesus, on his way to the cross, can say, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down freely. In other words, God is somehow, I'm not up here about to tell you exactly how, but God is somehow at work, even in suffering. And that leads us even to a a truth that is even more important for us to know, and that is that God is at work in suffering for good. But ultimately, through suffering, God works for good. And we'll come to that uh, even more in a moment. But here's another truth that we need to feel in this story. We don't know why Naomi and her family are suffering. I mentioned there might be some kind of divine judgment. That's a sense we get from the text. But the author's not explicit about it. In fact, it's not the author's priority to draw a straight line between causation and someone suffering. And nor should it be our priority either. There might be appropriate times to talk to friends and family and to say, hey, maybe that thing you're doing You know, smoking is a classic example, isn't it? Maybe it's not going to help your life. Maybe you need a budget in your life. You don't have one right now. and Maybe a budget would help. There's appropriate times to do that. But drawing lines between sin and suffering, our mistakes and suffering, is not our business. It's not what's most important to God either. Rather, what God cares about is what the author indicates in this. God cares about the future. God God cares about what's possible. God is interested in the future, not the past. And this brings up the second word that Naomi uses to talk about God in her complaint. The second word, the first one she uses is Shaddai, Almighty, God's in control of everything. The second word she uses is Lord, there in verse 21. She calls him Lord. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. And the Lord's in capitals in your Bibles because it's the covenantal name that God gave to his people Israel. It's the special name that God gave to his people precisely because he wanted to remind them and wanted them always to know that 
God is not just a great God in control of everything, but he's a good God. He's a good God. He's working for good in every circumstance. And I think Naomi misses that. I think although she uses that term, she misses the fact that God is good all the time. But here's something I think instructive for us in this whole situation. The first is, I don't think Naomi's complaint is evidence of little faith. You know, when someone's going through a hard time and they get bitter at God, and, you know, often our response could be, oh, you just need to have a little bit more faith. On the contrary, I don't think Naomi's complaint is evidence of little faith. Rather, with the freedom of faith that ascribes full sovereignty to God, she takes God so seriously that she can openly voice her complaint to him. I want to say this morning, you've got to let your pain lead you to prayer often. Let your pain lead you to prayer. Much of the Bible is God's people crying out to him because of their pain. And the other thing I think to say here is when people are grieving, let them grieve. Don't tell them to have more faith. Nobody corrects Naomi for her bitterness. You notice that? She comes back to her friends. She comes back to God's people. And nobody corrects her for her bitterness. I think that's because... It's not because her words are true, necessarily. But it's because God's people know a greater truth. In the words of Corrie ten Boom, that famous uh, German who looked after... Jews in Nazi Germany. She said, God doesn't have problems. He only has plans. And so I think when our friends and family are going through hard times, we need to remind ourselves of that truth and allow our friends to be bitter. But Naomi's response isn't a perfect response. And I want to, we could look at Orpah's response, but here's all I want to say about Orpah's response. Orpah bails on God. Naomi says, don't come with me. And, and Orpah says, okay, I won't come with you. And then Orpah's just lost in the story. She disappears. We don't find out anything about her. And I think Orpah's brevity in the story is telling. Because it's easy to bail on God when hard times come. But maybe we need to do exactly the opposite. So let's have a look at Ruth and Ruth's response. Have a look at verse 14 of chapter 1. At this they wept aloud again, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. But Ruth clung to her. This is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2 for marriage. A husband and wife leave their families and they cling to one another. That's the kind of decision Ruth is making. And her language is also kind of covenantal language, not just between a husband and a wife, but between God and his people. When Ruth says, have a look at verse 16, Ruth says, 
Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you from me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Ruth, that language there, you've probably heard it at a wedding before. Um, describing just this incredible promise-making and promise-keeping love. Where you go, I will go. Your people, my people. Where you die, I will die. That's language that the Israelites were, used, uh, were encouraged to use for their relationship with God. They were told to fear the Lord your God and serve him, hold fast to him, take your oaths in his name. And so Ruth, this Moabites, this woman who's come from a country that's known for idolatry, worshipping the wrong gods, and known for uh, their, them, the Moabitess women were known for seducing the men of Israel. This woman, Ruth, turns out to be the ideal Israelite. She knows what it means to be a daughter of Abraham and a part of the people of God even better than anyone else in Israel. Ruth's ready to forsake rest, a home, and a husband for God. There is no more radical decision in the memories of Israel. This is as good as it gets. Ruth possesses nothing. God hasn't called her. She has no support group. The fruit of her decision may well be rejection when she comes to Israel emptiness because Naomi's told her I've got no others I've got no sons you can marry and most likely she'll die in a foreign place she's chosen to be a female in a day that depended on men and she's she's chosen to be a female with no hope of having provision or security or home and so we could hold up Ruth as this incredible example of clinging to God even in the midst of suffering, when things look hopeless. And Ruth brings her emptiness to God. But I think there's much more to say about Ruth than she's just an example of how we can be in suffering. And that's because when push comes to shove, you and I are more likely to be bitter to God like Naomi or to bail on God like Orpah. We're not, when push comes to shove, more likely to be like Ruth. At least, that's my own experience. And that's because Ruth reflects a better love than you and I have. Ruth reflects the covenant faithfulness of God himself. Ruth portrays the goodness and graciousness of Yahweh. She's an example of his love to us, not our love to him. And in that sense, she actually foreshadows Jesus and his love to us. Just like Ruth forsook rest, home, and a family, Jesus forsook rest, home, and his heavenly family with all its privileges. And he embraced rejection and isolation and death in order to love us, in order to show us God's love. 
Ruth is this glimmer of hope. And she's a glimmer of hope that Naomi needs. I don't want to ruin the the story and tell you um, what happens with Ruth. But Ruth does foreshadow Jesus. A friend of mine um, who was looking at Ruth with me some years ago, who himself had gone through hardship, he said to me, as we were looking at this together, he said, when you are not going through trouble, these truths, the truths we've talked about today, about God being in control, God being involved in suffering, and God actually working for good in suffering, those truths are somewhat helpful to prepare you for times of trouble. But when life's hell, he said to me, what can really help is a friend. A friend who cries with us, who offers us their commitment to travel with us, even if both of you are empty. And he said, the sympathy of Jesus is so valuable that Jesus knows our pain, that he knows our suffering, that he's knows our affliction, that he knows our grief, that he knows what it's like to be empty, that he is a friend with us in our suffering. He said, that's what can be helpful. He said, in suffering, often we look for the why, when often what's most going to help us is the who. The number one promise in the Bible, and ultimately expressed in Jesus himself, is not an answer to our suffering in terms of here's why. But rather, that we have him with us. The number one promise in the Bible is, do not be afraid, for I am with you, says the Lord. We don't just have the promise of hope that God's going to work for good in suffering. We have the person of hope with us. And that's what Ruth represents in this story. A friend with us in our suffering who knows tragedy and yet sticks with us through it. What I find tragic is that Ruth, uh, Naomi misses this completely. In, 20, uh, in 21, she says, I went away full. It's on the back of your piece of paper today, that picture. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. But what she misses is this, verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth. She wasn't empty at all, in one sense. She had the promise of hope. She had the person of hope with her in her life. And often in our bitterness, we can miss that. This story keeps on going, not because Naomi's hopeful, Naomi's bitter. This story moves forward only because Ruth is with her. Naomi's hope is found in Ruth. Naomi's hope is found in Ruth's commitment to her, Ruth's friendship to her, Ruth's covenantal love to her. And likewise, our hope is found in Jesus, his friendship, his commitment, his covenantal love to us, and his presence by his spirit in our lives today.
And that is how we can say God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Because he is with us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, remind us today, uh, if life is good, continue to remind us of your sovereignty. Remind us that you're sovereign even when life gets hard. Remind us of your sovereignty and that you cause even hard times to come into our life for our good and you promise good in the end. But Lord, for those of us who are struggling this morning, who are going through hardship and pain, who are bitter, remind us in our bitterness of your faithful love to us your faithfulness to us, that you are here and with us and present in our suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing.